The first cell phone was demonstrated in 1973 by Martin Cooper. You know what wasn't demonstrated? Shared plans. Over 50 years later, you can save on one line thanks to Visible. When you switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible, you can get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just 25 bucks a month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees. No, really. You can look around for them. They're not there. Switch now at Visible.com. Save on wireless without the hassle. Switch to Visible today and save at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Beyond and hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Dornbush, and this is Podcast Beyond, episode 653. And I have the cadence of how I'm speaking really sticking out in my mind because Janet Garcia did a very good impersonation of me before we started recording. Uh, and we are joined, in fact, this week by Janet. And I'll get to the cast in a second. But before we move on, I do want to say, if you are wondering, because obviously it's one of the biggest PS4 games left to come this year, uh, our Ghost of Tsushima review will go up later in July, on July 14th on IGN, and it's being done by Mitchell Saltzman. Mitchell is a fantastic writer, a fantastic reviewer. He really knows his stuff. So super excited to have him doing that review. And we'll definitely have him on the show to talk through his review thoughts once all of that goes up. But basically, I uh, can't say anything until that review embargo comes up. So look forward to that. I uh, do also want to mention that if you're listening to this the week this goes up, uh, Tom Marks's Marvel's Iron Man VR review will also be going live this week, so you can stay tuned for that because that game goes live on the PSN at the end of this week. And uh, just to quickly touch on last week's episode with Brian and Khalif, I did want to apologize. There was a Last of Us 2 spoiler that uh, slipped by. I didn't even realize it was said until after the fact, uh, and I am so incredibly sorry to anyone who was spoiled by that. That's obviously never our intention on the show. We always try to give a uh, very clear spoiler warning warnings in advance and unfortunately that slipped through and i'm so sorry uh, i hope you can continue to check in on the game and continue playing it because obviously we'll be talking about it uh in the future including on this episode but this episode's discussion will remain spoiler free uh with that all mostly out of the way i did want to jump into the show because i'm joined this week by janet hey what's up hello janet uh we're also joined by lucy o'brien good day how are you i'm doing pretty well lucy how are you i'm not bad Good. Uh, and we're also wonderfully joined this week by a very special guest. Steve Saylor has joined us for the week. Thank you, Steve, for being here. Very excited to have you on. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, now, Steve, um, obviously, uh, we here, of course, know your work uh, and uh, really love your stuff. And we're really excited to have you on the show. For those who may be listening or watching who uh, don't know your work, do you want to give us a little bit of a, a background on what you do in the industry and sort of uh, perhaps maybe the viral video that recently went around of you <laughs> where people may have uh, caught your name? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm Steve Saylor. I'm commonly known uh, as the Blind Gamer, and I'm an accessibility advocate and consultant. I've worked with uh, several studios, including Ubisoft, and most recently Naughty Dog, uh, as a consultant brought in for The Last of Us Part Two, which I'm certain we're going to talk about a lot today. 
And I am also the media editor for caniplaythat.com, which is a site dedicated to reviewing uh, video games from an accessibility standpoint. Um, and yes, I guess also now I'm known as uh, uh, the guy that cried uh, over the accessibility settings for The Last of Us because uh, of that reaction video. So that's that's mainly that that's a thing that happened in the past two weeks that I'm, it's still very surreal <laughs> i honestly steve like i you know i loved that reaction because i've sort of been around the accessibility discussions for a while and and have sort of kept track of of how accessibility has changed over the years um and from 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 what i can tell and from what i've been told uh the last of us part two is sort of leap years uh ahead and 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 just sort of a, a remarkable jump for accessibility across all facets and seeing the fight that has taken place to get to this point uh i completely understand why it would have been incredibly emotional yeah um it was something that we within the accessibility community have been working on for a long time um and I'm still relatively new within uh, within the industry, but it's something that um, a lot of studios have been trying to figure out and trying to work out. And there's many different studios have tried many different things and some have succeeded and some have uh, have missed the mark a little bit. But we always like to say that start somewhere and you can build up from there. And with The Last of Us Part Two, with its 60 plus accessibility options, it essentially, yeah, as you said, jump leap years beyond beyond uh what every what every game has done before and uh essentially we're gonna be kind of looking back within this moment in in gaming history as uh, accessibility before the last of us part two and accessibility after last of us part two because they really set a new standard that now all other studios are going to have to uh, try to keep up yeah it's really fascinating to see the conversation around those options and it it does feel exactly like that uh as you were saying like we're going to look at this moment with this game and sort of be like that is a a a measuring uh post for us to look at future games especially as we get into a new generation um obviously like such a big spotlight is on the industry at large um as we go into a new generation so as we get to a new uh wave of games for them to be able to incorporate these things is really going to be important and uh really continue to matter uh based off what we see here i i I did want to ask because obviously i want to talk about uh your thoughts on the game at large and get into a little bit of all of our thoughts now that we've had a few weeks away uh from when we played the game and when the game launched um but in in terms of that suite of accessibility features beyond the sort of number of options in there what in particular stood out to you as something that was really meaningful or impactful for the play experience um there's a few sort of like specific options that i really enjoyed the most um the one that uh my reaction video essentially uh what i was looking at um when that happened uh there's when you turn on the game and you kind of go through a few sort of the uh, options in the beginning um you can come across it basically a section where you have three different presets um, there's one for uh, vision impairment, there's one for deaf and hard hearing, and one for motor ex- uh, accessibility. And essentially, if you turn on these presets, it turns on a list of so many different accessibility options uh, that will allow anyone within those spectrum of disability to be able to uh, to be able to play. And that in and of itself, it has never been seen before in games, just because of there usually isn't a lot of accessibility options that would warrant that. But because there was so many and 
they offered that as a, as a thing. It's like, we get it. There's a lot here. Instead of you having to manually turn all these on, just turn this one setting on. It'll turn on everything. And that got me really emotional seeing that uh, for the first time. And um, I, I, when I saw it in that reaction video, essentially that like I cried for like a good solid 10 minutes, just kind of seeing just that and hearing actually also the text to speech, which is in throughout the entire game. Every piece of text is readable via the text to speech, including which was surprised me enough was the, the title card that comes up. It even reads that out as well, um, which was so cool. And it was hearing that list of options. Essentially that's what kind of uh, got me really emotional. But when I finally jumped into the game and was able to play the ones that really stood out, that really helped me a lot uh, was high contrast mode, which essentially turns your character and any of your friends uh, into a shade of blue. It turns enemies into a shade of red and items you pick up as a shade of uh, yellow and the rest is everything is mainly grayscale. And that helps being able to determine and be able to pick out enemies and items from kind of dark areas where it'd be really hard to be able to see at first glance. And so, and you can be able to turn that on and off using the touchpad uh, very easily. And also, like I said, the text uh, text to speech, but uh, incorporating with that was the audio cues. There are so many audio cues for every single button that's in the game, but also there's so much, there's so much subtlety to it that makes it even more immersive where for example, if you're about to go up to a rope and you want to be able to climb it, um, you could just see it. You should be able to see it and be able to hit uh, X and it'll climb. But if you have audio cues turned on, there's an audio cue that lets you know to push the X button. But then there's also a sound effect that uh, that precedes that and basically lets you like it's a sound effect for a rope. So that way, you know, mm-hmm. if you cannot see the rope, there is something nearby that you can be able to climb and it'll be a rope. And it does that for basically anything you interact with, whether it's a, opening a drawer, opening a safe, getting on your horse. So cool to be able to just hear like a little horse whinny every time you, you get near your horse and you can just like, you know, you can build like you can just hop on. Uh, and there's and for me personally, what really stood out was the ability to be able to use Zoom um, using the touchpad. Essentially, all you have to do is you double tap, uh, double tap the touchpad and you can actually be able to zoom in depending on which sort of magnification you set out in the options. You can be able to zoom into the part of the screen and you can use your finger to scroll across the touchpad to be able to see where uh, things are. And it's helped many times where I'm like, okay, wait, is that an enemy or is that a tree? And I, all I have to do is double tap, zoom in. Okay, that's a tree. I'm good. Double tap to zoom out and, and I'm fine. And you can do that throughout the entire uh, game. The only control that it interferes with is being able to strum the guitar and pick the uh, do guitar picking. But um, you can use the X button to essentially to strum the guitar. So they've even thought of that. There's like layers upon layers upon layers of accessibility that just incorporate into everything. And it's, it was so cool just to be able to see. And, and, uh, and like I said before, I, a full disclosure, I did work on the game. So even though I knew a little bit of the options, seeing that in the final version of the game was just so amazing. And, uh, and like I said, it just really takes a leap forward. I'm, I'm really curious. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You, you go ahead, Jenna. Oh, thanks. Uh, I actually have a question, like a follow-up on that. I know on this show, we've talked a lot about the touchpad and how it's sort of an underutilized thing. And do we feel like we need it going forward? But of course, our bias, which is something that like, I know I have to consciously work against, is looking at those other perspectives. Maybe the touchpad isn't useful for me as a gamer, as a more able-bodied gamer, but maybe there's these other utilizations that I didn't even consider. So I'm curious, uh, Steve, do you feel like the touchpad opens up more opportunities for accessibility than a different modeled controller do you what other ways do you feel like it could be utilized for it in a way that maybe some of us might forget because we're not in that position 
Yeah, I, I actually would uh, say, like, I was in the same camp. Um, I really didn't understand the kind of the potential the touchpad had. Um, obviously, a few games tried it, and uh, essentially a lot of them just kind of used that as the glorified map button. And I totally mm-hmm. get it. At the time, I was like, okay, it's not really needed. But then when I found out what Naughty Dog was doing with that touchpad, and then even seeing the conversations when uh, when the dual sense was being discussed, I'm like, just you wait. There's there's more here, and there's more potential here. There's so much versatility in that touchpad. Like I said, you can swipe left to be able to uh, turn high con- contrast mode on or off. Uh, you can use it to zoom. You can even... Uh, swipe up on on the touchpad and it'll tell you whether your character is uh, standing crouched swimming prone and it'll even give you a readout of how much health you have left there's so much in there that can be used for accessibility purposes that doesn't even really uh, take control over any other kind of uh, options other than basically just pushing the button to be able to uh, open up the crafting menu or anything like that but even then just it's it's so subtle that it doesn't even interfere with, with with a lot of that at all. And I am really excited for the potential of that. And I really think that that's if, if uh, Sony's first party, like PlayStation studios, if they're able to take that and run with it for accessibility, I'm really excited to be able to see uh, what they can be able to do uh, with that. And, um, and just what, like what other potential options could be made within that touchpad. When you went in uh, to have those initial chats with Naughty Dog, how how were you approached uh and what did those initial chats look like uh so at first it was i i think actually naughty dog just likes to uh sort of uh poach uh from different sort of tech conferences um and gaming conferences because uh i've had a few of my friends who were consultants on it and had a very similar story where um there was a game uh game conference uh called game accessibility conference and they do it uh usually around gdc uh i was there uh as a panelist for uh basically a bunch of blind gamers we were there to discuss what we would love to be able to see uh in video games and we had a room full of uh developers who were really interested in accessibility and uh little did i know that there were some people from naughty dog and they came up to me after the break and they were like we want to work with you and i was like yes please I would love that because, um, of course, like it's when you say Naughty Dog, it's like you know exactly what they're working on. So, uh, and that was that was kind of the initial conversation. Um, and without really kind of going uh, into more specifics about what they kind of were discussing, but even going into it, I knew what like I when I saw kind of what they what they had, I knew all like already this was going to be a, a game changer, and they kind of were taking things that we had been discussing within the accessibility community and discussing at conferences and other studios, like we've been discussing all that for years and they seem to Naughty Dog had seemed to kind of take all of those into account. Uh, the fact that they uh, started development at the very beginning of the process uh, for accessibility. That's what we've been saying for years. And, and also as well, that it was a studio wide initiative in that it from Neil Druckmann all the way down, it was something that the entire studio was on board with in trying to be able to make uh, these accessibility settings uh, work and work really well. And also they brought in consultants along the way to provide feedback on what they're working on, offer suggestions and options we would love to see. And they kept bringing uh, consultants back to kind of uh, give progress and figure things out. And then also having the, uh, the capability that uh, um, you can like, they're tracking all that accessibility information as well in the final product so that they can be able to improve those accessibility settings uh like further on and build and this is something that with all those combined essentially kind of created this really amazing push internally that we like if we see other studios doing the same thing 
I would I'm I love to be able to get to the point where I'm going to be nitpicking what accessibility settings are in games instead of saying why don't you just have some that kind of thing. One of the things that I've been told over and over again by accessibility consultants is that accessibility should be baked into your game from the very beginning because I feel that there was a trend for a while there where accessibility was like, oh no, we've got to like quickly throw something in there at the last minute. And, you know, it, you could really tell. Whereas uh, if you bake it in from the very beginning, it's very organic and it's nowhere near as much of a lift as it is if you have it at the end. And again, these accessibility consultants I've been talking to have said, hey, it's not actually that difficult to add these features. And it's not only beneficial from uh, for people who have disabilities, it's also beneficial to everyone. And if, if you look at uh, The Last of Us Part Two's options, there are so many ways to play that game and it makes it so much more enjoyable for that reason. I mean, the difficulty, the, the fact that you can play with difficulty settings that aren't just like, this is hard, this is very hard, this is beginners, uh, you can mix and match to, to your own play style is just incredible and benefits everyone. And I think that that's the one thing that I sort of heard over and over again about accessibility is that it's not just uh, for, for, for people with disabilities, it's, it's for everyone. And that's a really important thing to consider. Well, 100%. Um, Microsoft even said it last year, obviously, when they were promoting the adaptive controller, and they say this phrase commonly, uh, when everybody plays, we all win. And even myself, I was like, I understood that and, and kind of was like, yes, 100%. Like when, when people with, uh, with disabilities can be able to play games, then we're, we're kind of felt like we're brought in to the same sort of fold as, as our friends are. But in reality, even seeing the reaction to a lot of the settings that have been coming out and uh, of this game, and seeing people who don't have a disability whatsoever and enjoying the settings that are there, it just makes it that much more enjoyable and more comfortable to play. It really did hit me that it's like, yes, no, like accessibility settings are for everyone, not just people with disabilities. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I put up The Last of Us, obviously we all toy with some of the um, options or at least see like, what are my options? That's always one go-to thing I have. And when I saw that they had large subtitles, I selected that so quickly and I was actually playing like almost at point blank range to my computer because I was just at my desk, but I just like having large subtitles. Like I, you know, I'm a glasses wearer and it's, it's, it's just difficult to read when everything's just so tiny and minuscule or if you're sitting really far back. Um, and Lucy, you know, to you, to your point, I remember with the outer, I think worlds it was where they kind of add that in after the fact, which is definitely better than nothing, but I, I think more and more. We hear gamers of all all types, all backgrounds kind of asking for these different types of options so that they can feel most comfortable and like they have an, an easy time playing. Because I think similar to when there's bugs or performance issues, like these are all things that can impede our ability to experience the game. And I think that's always the goal is to kind of get over that stuff so that we can really enjoy what the game has to offer. And that goes for, um, you know, like I said, gamers of all different backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I I was totally right there with you, Janet. Like, a, uh, you know, obviously wearing glasses very much needed for me to play uh, to a smaller extent. But yeah, I the, something as small as large font can be such a, a game changer for so many people that to then layer on, as you're saying, Steve, all of these options and all of these choices, it just lets more people play in a way that is more comfortable for them and more accessible for them. And that just makes the audience bigger and more voices get to talk about this game and enjoy this game and have fun with this game. And that's just a really exciting opportunity that I hope continues into next gen. Uh, before we jump a little bit more into last of us stuff, I did want to ask, cause you had brought it up. 
Um, is is your hope sort of that the dual sense can further these things as well? Because if it is truly as sensitive as they're saying and is able to simulate all these feelings and ideas and behaviors, theoretically, that should allow for people to interact with their games in a way they maybe wouldn't have been able to before. Um, I'm very kind of um, hit and miss with the dual sense uh, at the moment. Um, gotcha. Mainly because... Yes, I, I love the idea of sort of the haptic feedback because um, it really does help, for, especially for those who uh, who are blind, to be able to kind of understand kind of like what's going on in the game and it allows you a little bit more to be immersed into the world. Uh, I know that for for basically playing uh, anything on the Switch, uh, as surprisingly enough, anytime they have that sort of like very granular, specific haptic feedback, it really does help. And even in The Last of Us 2, they had that to a certain degree with uh, with what the DualShock has, uh, has had. Um, but there is some concerns that, that for people with motor disabilities in regards to um, the, I guess, the resistance that you can ha- that you can possibly set on the triggers. Um, and there's not really any, as far as we know, anything like a back button or a back pedal that, uh, say, like the Xbox Elite controller can have, or even with PlayStation's own thirty dollar <laughs> adapter, which I love and use immensely. Yeah. I hate being able to push in that L three R three. It is the worst <laughs> button I've ever seen, and I just love being able to like just. Use use the pedal for that so there's certain things that we're concerned about and and like uh go back to even to the resistance side of things because that like although that's cool and i i agree that that's a very immersive thing to be able to uh, to to do within a game but for those who have uh trouble trying to be able to use a controller that sort of resistance can be very uh it can actually hurt people um with, who have either specific nerve damage or can't use uh, their fingers in 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 a like 100 percent capacity so I, I hope that with these new options in the dual sense that we'll be able to that developers will basically be like, okay, these are great, but we should have options to turn it off or at least a meter to kind of like give the uh, the, the player a customization to like have a, a different sort of settings for each of those options. Absolutely. That makes uh, total sense. And I, I do hope we see that. I, I do believe there was a story going around that Naughty Dog is looking to sort of share their accessibility uh, findings and their work in this game with other studios. And essentially, I would hope at least the Sony first party family can kind of adapt uh, this into future games and really continue to build on this work. This episode of Podcast Beyond is brought to you by NordVPN, a great way to protect yourself online while also improving your overall experience while enjoying cyberspace. Are you tired of streaming shows, movies, or sporting events being unavailable in your region due to draconian restrictions that are based on completely arbitrary geographical boundaries in physical meat space? Well, switch your virtual location to a place where that's no longer an issue. The same goes for shopping. You can get the best possible deal on subscriptions, flights, hotels, and other goods and services like that from websites that like to play favorites with certain territories and currencies. Meanwhile, encrypted traffic protects your data from hackers, viruses, malware, phishing sites, and other harmful hitchhikers of the information superhighway. Though really, it's more of an information autobahn because there is no speed limit with NordVPN. It is the fastest VPN in the world, so there won't be any buffering or lagging, and it'll stop your ISP from throttling your bandwidth. Isn't that nice? One NordVPN account can be used across six devices, which is great. My wife has been using our account to watch all sorts of awful British reality TV shows that aren't available here, like Argument Island or Half-Naked Idiots Fall in Love, and everyone's favorite, The Worst People Just Got Married, Let's Hear Them Talk About It. Shows that are so bad, they're blocked in our part of the world for our own good, but luckily, NordVPN allows her to trick the internet into thinking she's in the UK, so she and her awful friends can shriek and howl and cackle at the TV while I'm trying to relax. I've been using my VPN too. You know what I've been using it for? 
None of your business. Yep, that's right. And thanks to NordVPN, my data is safely encrypted, all bundled up in a weighted security blanket of incomprehensibly complex math problems, and nobody can tell what it's doing under there. Data, you do your thing. I'll leave you alone. One month of NordVPN coverage costs less than a cup of coffee. Coffee can't protect you from cyber criminals unless you throw it at them or pour it on their computers, and you'll probably get in trouble for doing that. So get NordVPN instead. To get the best possible discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash pobeyond. That link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, that is nordvpn.com slash pobeyond. And now, back to the show. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um... But I, I do want to jump into the game at large because as sort of has become customary on the show over the last few weeks, uh, basically anyone who appears on the show, how did you like The Last of Us Part Two overall, Steve? Oh, uh, so when I started playing it, I and, uh, loved it. Spoiler free, just uh, oh yes, one hundred percent, yeah, so, yes, yeah. Uh, when I started playing it, I loved it, and then about a little bit in, I hated it. And then about a little bit in, I loved it again. And a little bit in, I hated it again. I was like, wait, why? Why are we doing this? Why? Why? Uh, and then by the end of it, I absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, it's it's one of those games that, like, it takes you on a, a an emotional journey that I didn't expect to have. Uh, and it's it does, it kind of transform storytelling in in a way that i hadn't seen before and i feel honestly kind of t- like proves how much video games is its own art form and i know a lot of people compare it to movies or tv shows that we're getting nowadays but it really when when you kind of get the like the opportunity to be able to like really feel like you are the character themselves that and you're feeling the same emotions as they are that's something that you don't get when you're watching a, a, a movie or a TV show because you like you have control over that. Like you have control over that character, and to me, that was uh, a, amazing to see. And of course, being able to play with accessibility and and finally be able to play a game on my couch, which I've never been able to do before uh, without having to sit uh, like a foot and a half for my TV, which basically kind of a bit of my my setup i even right now i have a 50 inch tv sitting in front of me that's about a foot and a half two feet away and that's my computer monitor slash gaming tv and that's how i'm able to see and play um because everything else is on the couch is really difficult but being able to finally actually play this in my living room it was really really amazing and i could actually focus in on the story and the gameplay um and i i was one that i i love the first one I thought it was uh, I thought it was great and it really kind of pushed storytelling in in a new 
in a new way, but uh, this one kind of takes that even further. And yeah, without obviously like, I would love to get into spoilers because <laughs> there's so many things I would love to just discuss, but I'm, I, I absolutely uh, think it is a, it is a true masterpiece in all in, intents of the word. And uh, Lucy and Janet, I do want to ask because I know both of you, uh, Janet, you put together a sort of uh, a, a drunk spoiler cast, uh, for yes. lack of a better term, uh, and that Lucy was also part of. Uh, now that we're a few weeks out as well, how are, how are you both feeling sitting with the game? Um, where are you sort of standing? Obviously, I know there's been a lot of capital D discourse about it, but for, for your... Oh, we're not going to talk about the discourse. We're not going to talk about the discourse. No one will remember the discourse and... Exactly. 50 years hopefully uh, <laughs> and then people were like do you remember that that was wild yeah i i love it still um i loved it while i was playing it um i loved it when it was over like i kind of i didn't really have uh any bit of a wavering there definitely were choices made right uh that like you know there are twists and and things that people feel some type of way about is all i'll say without getting into spoilers but for me maybe it's because i am have always been really into storytelling like i have i've talked about this before on the show i used to teach high school English. I have a strong background in just enjoying narratives. And like, if you study English literature, like you're used to dark, twisted stuff. And I'm like, this is just fun to watch unravel. So I didn't have any um, hang ups about whatever happened, because I just liked watching it unfold. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought narratively and mechanically, there were a lot of um, wonderful choices made. I think they really worked to have the mechanics play into what the, the narrative shifts that did occur, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I have liked just talking to people about this game after the fact. Like, I know we're not going to get into spoilers on, on this episode, but it's such a fun game to talk about because it's so story-driven. There's such so much drama. Whether you were for or against the drama, there's drama. Like, that's undeniable. And that's just fun to talk about. Even if you don't want to get, you know, there's ways to dig deep with this game and look at themes and symbols and... and and talk about unconventional narrative structure and storytelling and if it's effective or not. But even if you don't want to do all that, like, let's just talk about this and like, which character did you like? And, you know, did, did you like Mel at all? How'd you feel about so-and-so? Like just having even those surface level conversations are so thrilling. And yeah, that's what I've really enjoyed about the game. And as more and more people and fans and other critics finish it, um, as much as sometimes those conversations maybe aren't pleasant in certain parts of the internet, I've just really enjoyed Having people, and it's not an invite for everyone to DM me, but just having people DM or comment on things that I've done and just, just bursting to talk about this game, like send writing paragraph long and really thoughtful stuff too of like, oh my God, I'm so glad that you talked about such and such because I got to that part. And, you know, I, I think that's something so joyous. And like I said, there are really dark parts of this, of the discourse. You know, there's, there's different forms of bigotry coming out. There's different forms of just people not playing it and discounting it and leaks. And there's like, a million things against having productive conversations on this game but even through all of that i see so much um just fun conversations happening and joy and intrigue and that, that's what always makes me excited about covering games like that's the part that i love about being in this industry and as much as there's a lot of noise trying to drown that out um i've just really enjoyed engaging with that after release yeah and i you know i'll i'll echo that uh, insofar as this is a game that is polarizing and I think polarizing games are far more interesting than the ones that everyone really loves or everyone really hates uh, and it, it's polarizing in, in extreme ends as well it's not sort of like a you know a comfortable seven polarizing it's very much like one end and the other um, 
I think one of the things that I love so much about The Last of Us Part Two is that uh, we're so used to, as gamers, playing characters who are very likable, playing characters who are very, uh, you know, despite their flaws, you sort of love them nonetheless. And and I, I'm not saying that you don't love the, the characters in The Last of Us Part Two, that you don't love Ellie, uh, but it's, it challenges you. Uh, and t- it challenges your love. It challenges your uh initial sort of perceptions of what this character is and, 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 and who she is. And, and, and in in a way that sort of really swept the rug out from under my feet. Uh, like I, I've never experienced that before in a, in a, in a triple A game. I, I felt that they, they sort of did it so well at the end of the last of us when you felt like Joel was maybe not who you thought he was. Uh, and they really sort of doubled down that on that here in presenting Ellie and others in in the in really complex shades of gray uh i'm sort of flipping around with metaphors here no, but I you, you know what i mean like it's it, it's very it's very it's a very human story the last of us part two in a way that sort of makes a lot of other games feel really cartoonish and i understand that people are mad because it's not it's not necessarily easily palatable uh, but I think it's it's brave, and it it I haven't stopped thinking about it. I finished it a couple of weeks ago. I still haven't stopped thinking about it, and the fact that people are still talking about it uh, with such passion and fervor on either side, uh, I think, is really indicative of a of a job well done in terms of a story that's made a massive impact and a game that has played with with oh god spoilers uh, that has played around with uh, you know our perceptions and in, yeah. in, in, in the way that it did. So I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an achievement. Yeah. Well, well, like you were saying, most games are predicated on the idea of wish fulfillment and giving you this power fantasy. And I don't think th- this story is a wish I would ever want to personally fulfill, but uh, it is one that I'm glad I experienced in this capacity and, and was, it was designed in a way to make you experience it. Like it is a, uh, I, I'm very curious to see how the Last of Us TV show does, uh, because I do think you can make yeah. a great TV show, but I do think there are specific things both about the first game and specifically this one as well that are tied, like you were saying, Steve, uh, to this medium. Like they are, it is very indicative of what games can do and not just what stories can do. Uh, and so I'm curious how that translation happens into a different form. Um, I, I, I did want to sort of touch on uh, the sales success of the game because I do think it's worth uh, us bringing up for sure because, uh, you know, this game went into its launch with so much controversy around it and um, some very positive reviews, including my own, and some critical reviews and some very thoughtful reviews and obviously a lot of discussion going in. And then it sold 4 million copies in its first weekend and was the uh, fastest selling PS4 exclusive uh, of the generation, uh, first party PS4 exclusive. And it's sort of one of those things that I, I, when that happened, I wasn't shocked, but it was a a good reminder of like stepping outside of the conversation around a game as big as this. Like this is something that touches beyond, 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 beyond us having this. No, let's not do that. Let's not do that. (laughs) You know what? You guys knew what happened when you invited me here so (laughs) lucy you and i aren't allowed to do it uh janet steve feel free to do it as much as oh i I got my one in i'm I'm happy like if you haven't lived until you've made that awful joke like it's just you have to do it 
It's very true. Um, but did did that initial sales success, given the discussion around the game into launch, surprise any of you? Was that sort of what you would expect a uh, big success for this game? Because, of course, the first one is such a massive hit. I mean, yeah, yeah I think, uh, you know, Twitter in particular is a filthy, dank hole. Um, and and it's very easy to get caught up in uh, in the in the drama of of Twitter that you know the 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 conversation of 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 Twitter and 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 Reddit as well uh you know people are very online uh but we sort of forget that there is a whole other contingent of people out there who uh were completely oblivious to the leaks who were complete, uh, completely oblivious to the conversations uh that sort of subsequently arose and just wanted to play the sequel to one of the the greatest games of that particular generation and 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 they're doing so and you know, I I believe also in spite. I'm seeing people enjoy it in spite of the leaks as well. So there's it's very easy to get wrapped up in in this little kind of cosmos of think, <laughs> uh, but it's not necessarily indicative of 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 the wider uh, sort of what's happening at large. Yeah, I think um, that's Jen, totally yeah. spot on. Um, I, I also I've said this before, like on other places on the internet, but. Uh, I just I think it's awesome that a game like The Last of Us sells so well because it's a narrative game. It is very action. I'm not going to pretend like it's not an action adventure game because it totally is. You're shooting guns. You're stabbing people. You're you're opening those drawers. Like I love I love opening a good drawer. But like it's it's so much its story and like the conversation around this game has been about the story. I, I rarely hear people even talk about the gameplay. Um, well, I, you know I'm, I'm cool talking about that too. It it was amazing gameplay as well but the story is really what is driving the conversation and i love that because for so long and even to this day like and maybe this is just more of an online thing but you know narrative games aren't nearly as popular as the other genres and some people are like oh what you know it's just a story like it's barely even a game like and i I love that this kind of fuses those and it shows that you can have an amazing story even in an action game and i like I, i really hope that this sort of pushes this shows that people like good stories and that it there is a market for excellent storytelling like i said it is very much still an action game but that's something that is just exciting to me but yeah it's not to echo lucy it's not surprising in the sense that the last of us was huge and this is a sequel to a huge deal um i think what would be more indicative of what the players at large think is if there is like a last of us three or another thing in this universe i think if that wouldn't sell as well that would more so tell me what players thought of this game but because the first one was so successful this one's obviously gonna sell just as well if not obviously way better because it's the follow-up to something that people already love yeah for me i i definitely wasn't uh hugely surprised by that um i did I was surprised at that number, the fact that it beat out, uh, I guess it was Spider-Man was the one previous record holder for that. Yeah. Um, so I, I had actually thought that it wasn't going to be able to compete with that because Spider-Man is like is globally known and it's a lot more, uh, pardon the, the term, but accessible for uh, for people who are just interested in video games um, to be able to like, OK, yeah, I know who Spider-Man is. I'd love to be able to try this game. Uh, I thought that was it was going to beat that, but having something that is a sequel to a game that you yes you could have played over the past seven years, but it's something that is very deep within the PlayStation ecosystem, and it's a beloved game. Um, I I am am not as hugely surprised at like as how many copies it sold in that first three days, and and I'm I'm willing to even say that there's a large chunk of it uh, even from the accessibility side from disabled players. 
it, nothing makes me so humbled and honored and surprised even more when all all of when the reaction video uh, was happening i was getting messages upon messages of people buying the game because of its accessibility and even some people buying ps4s so they can play this game because of how accessible this is like that to me like I, the fact that i sold a few ps4s out of that i'm like oh man like that <laughs> I, I knew this was something <laughs> I, you know i wish i was about to call neil and be like hey uh, uh but um like just seeing and i and i agree with you lucy like i think seeing the, the the sort of negative aspect of twitter when it first came out like i i saw my fair share of it uh the past few weeks and i was a bit wor- uh, worried at first because like it, it seemed that according to the sort of twitter sphere it seemed that everything was mixed and um but when i saw essentially that that news that it sold four million copies i was like okay there's a lot there's a bigger majority that um that is um, out speaking the 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 vocal minority and uh i'm very happy to be able to see that that uh that is now the faster growing game i would love to see like the final monthly numbers for june um just to see how much it grows yeah yeah absolutely and and i i i also want to know because i can sort of i'm sort of envisioning the comments on this video um i i also want to note that like you know you're allowed to not like this game that you know this, just because we love it we're not telling you that you can't love it uh i i think that one of the problems that we were seeing is that it wasn't it wasn't a sort of this is my reasoned criticism of this narrative structure or you know i didn't this narrative wasn't for me it was it was it was very vitriolic it was very it was is sort of hateful. A lot of like really nasty memes and stuff were going around. Um, a lot of uh, you know horrible threats floating around the the creators. You know there, there was a horrible. It's 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 been nasty. And it, it, when you sort of see that nastiness, particularly uh, sort of on a single platform like Twitter, it can feel quite over, overwhelming, right? And it can feel like that is the discourse around this game. Like the discourse is tainted. Like this game is tainted uh, because the discourse has been so negative and. And and you know that's that's not to say that you that that there are people there out there who aren't enjoying it and who are disappointed and that's totally valid. Uh, and I, you know I'd love I'd love to hear some some reasoned criticism from from players themselves. Like I've definitely read uh, some great critiques, some great criticisms of this game um, from you know from writers. But I'd also love to hear some sort of reasoned uh, uh, criticism because yeah, I've got a lot of you know the old the old twitter diarrhea and i i'd i'd love something a little bit more uh rational yeah we um i i think we'll definitely be talking about our more spoiler focused thoughts on this game in the future and if you have some thoughts on the game that you want to write in with uh you can write into beyond at ign.com with those uh and as we put together a spoiler cast it is coming schedules have just been crazy i'm sorry uh we will definitely incorporate some of those into that show uh but to sort of transition from one uh incredibly dark and harrowing tale to another dark and harrowing tale i spoke to some of the team behind bug snacks uh earlier this week about uh really diving into that world and everything you can expect and some things they just don't want to say just yet about the game but uh i spoke to phil and kevin from young horses about that game so i'm gonna toss to that interview and you can hear about bug snacks I'm very thankful to be joined today by Phil and Kevin from Young Horses, the team behind the upcoming and delightfully strange and wonderful Bug Snacks, which you may have seen and may have been stuck in your head since the PS5 event, as it has been for me. Um, Phil, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Very excited to talk about this game with you both. 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so, of course, the the place I want to start, there's uh, so many things I do want to discuss about this game, but I have to start, of course, with the the bit that has popped up uh, in my household every 20 minutes for the last week and a half, honestly, and that's the song. Um, the, I, I need to know the origins of the song, the the decision to write the song, how the, how the music all came together. Just how, how did this wonderful earworm of a tune sort of begin, and how did it become what it was in the final trailer? Sure. Uh, so... Octodad, uh, which is another game we released, also had a kind of theme song to it. Um, both the first one and Deadliest Catch had their own theme songs to them um, that we think kind of elevated the game, propelled it into like becoming more of a meme or more of something that like is like dying to be shared with other people being just like, look at this weird thing and this catchy song. And so when we went to release our second game or at least announce our second game, Bugsnax, uh, we figured something similar would make sense. And it felt weird. I think it would have felt weird if we hadn't had a theme song, <laughs> uh, given that we, our games kind of give off a like Saturday morning cartoon vibe, I feel like. Uh, and so it just feels very in place. Uh, and so Given the music that was written for the actual like in-game stuff um, by Seth Parker, our composer and sound designer, uh, the feel of that reminded us a lot of Caro Caro Bonito, who is the band uh, that wrote uh, and performed its Bug Snacks. And uh, they have a song called Picture This that we thought like really fit how the game sounds and feels. Um, and would be good to kind of base uh, a theme song off of. And so I had actually emailed them accidentally through like a publishing company that like published some of their singles, thinking that it was maybe their manager or <laughs> some like their someone that they worked with. Cause I didn't, you know, we had never um, directly licensed a song before from somebody that we didn't know. Uh, the Octodad song was actually written by Ian McKinney, who's just a friend of ours. Um, and so that was a little bit more simple. But eventually I got in contact with their management and with the band uh, and talked with them. And luckily they knew uh, what Octodad was. So we had like a good in there and didn't have to be like, we promise we're like real uh, game developers and like this is a real thing. Um, and so we gave them a build of the game. Uh, we gave them a bunch of like concept materials, access to the script, basically everything we could to kind of get across what the game was. Uh, we had a couple of calls with them just to talk about like the thematic elements of the game, um, how to incorporate that into the song. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, they came back to us with the demo. And a couple iterations later, they came back to us with the final tune. And it's uh, it's such a, a, a earworm of a song. And I, I love how it, it encapsulates that first trailer. And I think it pairs so well with it. What I love so much about the song is the the way it, it conveys sort of the bright, cheerful, really bubbly tone of the trailer. But then we get to the end of that trailer and we have this darker moment uh, with the rush toward the camera and sort of this darker nighttime shot. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tone of the overall game, because that, that little bit at the end really struck and uh, has stayed with me since seeing it for the first time. Um. As far as the end, I don't uh, entirely know what you're talking about, but the <laughs> I mean, the overall tone uh, is very, you know, it's going to be cute uh, and delightful, but also very mysterious. Mm -hmm. 
And I definitely see a lot of speculation online about what will be in the game. And I'd hate to uh, answer that question. Of course. <laughs> Fair enough. But 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 what you I, I suppose that what you've seen in the trailer is an indicator of what the game could be like. Um, yeah, and I, I think like a good analog to cut in is that with Octodad, it was a pretty cute and fun and almost toy-like game on the surface, but there were some themes in it and some stuff in the story that was actually pretty sad. Um, True. Or pretty, or like deeper than, than that surface level appearance. And I think you can expect a similar um, level of depth from Bug Snacks. I would say our, our favorite thing to do is take an absurd premise very, very seriously. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that was definitely one of my favorite things about Octodad, especially, um, playing it at the sort of beginning of the PS4 generation, I would have friends come over and they'd see this wacky, silly seeming game. And then we'd get to some of the deeper stuff and they'd be like, Oh, that was not where I thought this would be going. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what Bugsnacks can do there as well. <laughs> um, I, I guess on that note, what can you tell me sort of about the, the impetus for the game based on what we do see in that trailer and sort of what players will actually be experiencing on a, you know, start to the story level. So, yeah, it's about, um, like you're this journalist who has received an invitation from Elizabeth, the character you see in the trailer. Uh, she's told you, like, I've discovered these bug snacks. Come to this island and report on the story. Interview me. We're going to show the world bug snacks. But when you get there, she's gone. She's missing. Nobody knows where she is. And so you're kind of on this quest to find her, find out what happened to her. But on the way, you meet all of her friends, the other people who are living on the island with her. Uh, and they want bug snacks, lots of them. <laughs> and so in order to explore the island, in order to solve the mystery, you've got to catch a lot of bug snacks and feed a lot of bug snacks to people. <laughs> I did want to talk sort of about the the inspirations for this game, because it is, uh, at least from what we've seen, a, a, a unique mix of things. And I've definitely loved seeing some of the teams sort of share their inspirations um, from other games for bug snacks i was curious at least for the two of you could speak to your personal inspirations for this project and sort of the team at large uh yeah um so for me personally i i was very much influenced by uh a lot of cartoons that i've seen <laughs> um adventure time was a big one uh not a cartoon but the muppets for sure uh and then in terms of video games i had played a lot of pikmin uh, leading up to Bug Snacks, uh, Pokemon Snap was a big one. Um, what else? Viva Pinata. Um, I think we played Ape Escape for a little while. We did play Ape Escape. Um, then uh, I remember tweeting that Bioshock was in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Lost is a big influence. <laughs> yeah. I think. I sometimes only refer to it in like a joking way, but like we talked a lot about, or at least referred to uh, like Apocalypse Now and the island of Dr. Moreau a lot, like <laughs> semi-jokingly, um, but also not that jokingly. <laughs> well, they're they're fun to say because you know even though they're outrageous. <laughs> Even They're though like it a, is a, a delightfully themed game, like, you know, we can still be inspired by a lot of things that are pretty nasty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially when a, a conceit, perhaps, of the game is 
eating these bug snacks uh, right. in this deserted island. Who knows where those things may end up? Um, I, I was wondering what you could say as of right now on a gameplay level, sort of the the catching aspect, the collecting aspect of getting these bugs, these bug snacks for people. How, how, how will that system work? Can you talk about it all yet? Or is that sort of uh, to be shown off later? We can say that it's a first person game, uh, first person adventure game, and you use different contraptions and bait in order to capture bug snacks. Because at some point we'll, you know, have a gameplay trailer and stuff like that. But um, it's a pretty narrative driven game. And while you're going throughout the island and finding all of these uh, people who followed Lisbert to the island, um, you're kind of finding out like what exactly they need and want uh, and what their problems are and trying to help solve them through bug snacks. Well, I'm very excited to hear more about that as we see more of the game. I do want to ask, uh, sort of as we're wrapping up, of course, uh, this coming to PS5, can you talk at all about um, how it's taking advantage of the DualSense controller? Because that's something a lot of us haven't gotten our hands on yet, but it seems something that is pretty built around getting your hands on it and feeling the game more. Can you talk about how Snacks will take advantage of that a bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the haptic feedback of the DualSense controller has been pretty interesting, actually. Like. Previously, on pretty much any console that has like vibration or rumble or whatever, uh, it's like a nice feature and it sometimes can make things more immersive, but I haven't felt anything quite as like intricate and uh, uh, sensitive as the DualSense's rumble or as the DualSense's haptic feedback. Um, because in our game, being in first person, like running on different terrain, jumping in and out of water, or uh, running into bug snacks, um, you can feel the difference between running on grass versus running in water versus running on sand or snow um, and things of that nature, which it feels pretty cool. Or like if there's like there's weather in our game and if there's a thunderstorm and things of that nature, you can feel kind of like where the sound is coming from through the vibration. Uh, we're also taking advantage of the controller speaker. So like when you capture a bug snack, each bug snack has its own unique cry kind of like Pokemon do, uh, and you can hear it through the speaker of the controller when you capture it. Um, or even using the, the light on the controller uh, to display like how in danger uh, you are of a Bucksneck escaping from a trap, um, things like that. Uh, and we're also using the uh, adaptive triggers. Uh, different traps have different kind of functionalities, and some of those are best exhibited through uh, kind of like tension in those triggers or rumble in them and stuff like that um, to make you feel like you're really using them. Uh, so we're trying to kind of run the gamut and use everything possible, uh, which I think is has been like a nice opportunity because with Octodad we had rumble, but it wasn't something that we like spent a ton of time focusing on. Um, so it's been nice this time around to, to be able to spend the time now if you're still watching you may be wondering why all of a sudden we are all uh wearing different clothes and the lighting may be slightly different uh that is because due to unforeseen circumstances on my end which i wish i had foreseen uh we had to cut part the first half of the interview short but thankfully uh kevin and phil were able to jump back on the line to continue talking bug snacks which i greatly appreciate uh both of you taking the time so thank you yeah thanks for having us yeah um, so I thought, you know, now that a few days have passed and I realized I had put you both on the the spot uh, for the original interview, I thought I could ask if if any that you can say 
bug snacks puns uh, have come to mind that you really do love uh, to kick things off for part two. If, there, if there's any that you can say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I've been thinking deeply about this since last time because <laughs> I feel like I, I just did such a bad job. So uh, it was like the, the ideal bug snacks being fusions of bug and snack. Uh, yes. One of them is the Frider, is French fry spider. Perfect. And I would also submit that the best ones also, the food looks like the bug already, kind of. Oh, yeah. Um, so another really good one is the peel bug which oh. is an orange and a pill bug. Wow. And so when it's rolled up, it looks exactly like an orange. <laughs> Nature's just doing your job for you. That's pretty great. As it often does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the I had one more, and that was the cockroach. Ooh. Which is a taco cockroach. That's really great. I, I believe that that art's up. Uh, I think I may have yeah. seen for the cockroach, yeah, that is that is perfect. Uh, I can't wait for. I hope there's a uh, bug snacks encyclopedia uh, at some yeah. point around launch because I will I will definitely be looking at that for sure. Um, I I do want to jump back in though talking and one of the things I wanted to ask about because we had um, Phil, you had started to sort of mention it uh, at the end of the last time we spoke was um, sort of the the narrative driven aspect of the game, and I was wondering what. Um, you know, obviously not wanting to spoil where the story goes or anything that you can't say right now, but sort of what you, the team wanted to explore with this story set up with this idea and this concept of coming to this island and sort of experiencing the lives of all the people uh, there and w what the team wanted to explore with that. Sure, I I can talk about it a little bit, but actually Kevin would probably be <laughs> much better. Uh, <laughs> I'm very I'm... interested what you say, Phil. Because <laughs> Kevin, Kevin's the writer of the game. Um, main writer, but uh, I feel like a lot of what we explore in the game thematically are themes of community uh, and how people go looking for solutions to their problems, sometimes in the wrong places, uh, and how kind of realizing that or maybe not realizing uh, and falling into that uh, can affect uh, your life, um, as well as um, themes of like environmental conservation and overconsumption in general, not even only relating to food, but all things. Kevin, how did that. he do? Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful, Phil. I have nothing to add. <laughs> awesome. I was a bit curious because we had sort of talked about um, the different environments and the weather in the game affecting things. Is it safe to say that the the island will have somewhat different ecosystems and different bug snacks living in different areas it'll sort of be a like multi-varietal island um or is it something that's all cohesive and uh very similar across the map like how did the design of the island come about basically um there's definitely a variety of like different biomes across the island and like you know the the different flavors and types of bug snacks kind of reflect the area they're living inside of um and so there's uh you can see a good number of them like in the trailer yeah. like the sort of the snowy mountainous area the sort of uh red rock canyony area uh the forests the beaches um, yeah i was i was just thinking about it and actually snacktooth island kind of reminds me of neverland in like hook or something like that mm -hmm. in the fact that like the seasons and um looks of the areas kind of blend from one to the other sort of drastically 
um, but in like a fun, a fun way. Yeah, I'd, I'd call it a uh, an exaggerated shift between some pretty extreme biomes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, as a, as an island I've never visited, I'll, I'll take the game's word for how it uh, behaves on an <laughs> ecological level. Um, I, I, I did want to ask, though, um, one of, I think, the funnier parts of the trailer for me, at least, was sort of the uh, the variety you see as bug snacks are consumed in the different um, ways that shifts uh, the bodies um, in, the, in the trailer. Is, is that something that figuring out what do bugs bug snacks affect different specific body parts or is it dependent on what other bug snacks have been eaten is there sort of a like mix and match scenario i i, I have a lot of questions about the physiology of eating bug snacks, I guess. <laughs> um yeah i guess without getting too deep into it um like uh any given bug snack can affect any given region of the body yeah. Uh, and so you could become fully one kind if you wanted to, mm. if you had eaten enough of it, say. Uh, or you could mix and match all kinds of wacky parts. Like, uh, but it is there. There's not like a specific correlation between limb and bug snack, which is a nightmare on our artists. <laughs> <laughs> Accounting for making sure a bug snack can fit to every limb. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And that the bug snacks kind of fit with each other mostly. Oh, yeah. And a lot um, of the characters have different like body shapes and sizes, so that also plays into the variations in the transformations. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Some characters are very short and some are very tall, and it has to work for all of them. And sort of on a more pulled out level, I guess as just someone who's curious because I, you know, really, really loved Octodad and obviously this is, uh, the studio's been quiet for a bit of time, was, um, has Bug Snacks been something that's been in the works for a long time? Did the studio explore some other ideas? Uh, sort of like how did, when did Bug Snacks start to really originate and come into the form that we've seen it so far? Yeah, we've been working on it basically since we released Octa Deadliest Catch, which was in 2014, so past six years or so. Um, and we started off doing some kind of um, prototyping uh, that we tried to kind of follow the same formula in some ways as we used to happen upon Octodad as an idea. And that like everybody on the team got to pitch like as many ideas internally to everyone else on the team uh, as they wanted. Uh, kind of no matter what their job or role is uh, traditionally. And then we kind of all decided to like vote on those. And those were just like one page, like, oh, here's what I think it might look like or sound like or play like. And uh, maybe here's some like inspirational art or things I'm pulling from, like a mood board sort of thing. And then from there, went to doing like prototypes of the ones that everyone agreed were the most interesting. And then <laughs> took prototypes from like, three of those ideas played them and then figured out uh which of these seems like the most promising which which of these feels the most like a young horse's game uh, and kind of like fits what we try to do and be uh and then even once we got to bug snacks as like the main thing uh there was a lot more prototyping and figuring out like well what is this game really uh because it's always been like you find these half bug, half snack creatures, and we've always had like the grumpus kind of Muppet people. Uh, but 
everything else surrounding it has kind of morphed and changed over the last six years um, quite a bit uh, to where originally the game was basically three games worth of mechanics uh, <laughs> that were all vastly different from one another, <laughs> uh, ranging from like Animal Crossing social sim to like Cooking Mama style oh, wow. bug preparation. <laughs> uh, which both of those things have been either completely re removed or changed like drastically since then. Um, so just like giving an idea of, I don't know, how drastically a game can change from concept to completion. Uh, yeah, it's it's been quite a process and, and journey of just finding out what works, what, and then also just like what is feasible with our team because we're only <laughs> nine people. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, there's only so much you can do even with that much time. Yeah, it's um, th that journey is so fascinating to me as someone who, you know, often, uh, especially for our audience, we see the game when it's presented in a trailer or the first images, but uh, you don't necessarily always get that context of the road leading up to those first reveals <laughs> and the eventual release. Right. Um, yeah. That's it, that's pretty incredible to hear that. Um, some aspects of it have stayed sort of since the earlier iterations and then some things have been so completely removed or <laughs> altered. Um, I, I did want to ask and uh, Phil or Kevin, I don't know who best would speak to this, but uh, sort of on a design uh, level, because we did talk about uh, the bug snacks a bit, but the grumpuses, as you had been mentioning, um, what was sort of a Muppet inspiration, the, the, primary source of inspiration for them how did how did the design of them come about because sort of instantly they felt unique but uh, familiar in like a comfortable way as someone who's you know been a big fan of the muppets and stuff like that in the past um so like the grumpuses uh like i think what we knew about them conceptually at the start was that they were uh they were fuzzy they were trash can shaped and <laughs> Like they could, uh, they had to have really big mouths so that they could eat very large objects. <laughs> Those, I think, were the main design constraints. And then, um, when you factor in that, uh, any piece of them could change into anything, they had to also be very modular, like in their design. Um, and that's, uh, a lot of the hard work was done by Chris, our art director, um, who went through countless pages of little monster <laughs> designs trying to get yeah. at what a grumpus looks like um and, and i think I'm, yeah sorry i feel like on top of that though like we both had to make i feel like this comes up a lot in our designs of things it's like okay they need to be extremely modular but also each of them has to be unique so that people can point out and say like that's my favorite grumpus or like <laughs> i identify with this person well and so that's why we have like the the unique like items that maybe like clothing that they wear or their color. Well, and especially uh, when you factor in that uh, all of their body could be completely unrecognizable uh, <laughs> if you feed them enough. That uh, each individual character needs to have a pretty different body shape and accessories, so that you can tell even if they are a hundred percent pickles that <laughs> that that's the character you're looking at. <laughs> Yeah, like their silhouette basically. Um, so i guess it was a, a pretty big design challenge for all of us to get at the way those creatures look yeah that that seems like first of all i love the description of just anything being 100 percent pickles uh, i think that's a great way to describe anything um but yeah the the modularity and the sort of uh, amount of things you would need to account for i could imagine would 
you know, be a, a large part of this process on both a gameplay and also design level. Like I would imagine that both sides are really influencing each other in that sort of process. Um, yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> uh, and so I, I guess to wrap up my, one of my biggest curiosities is just, especially, you know, sort of as a studio that has been working on this project for so long, but uh, so much of the, industry has changed in a lot of ways over this entire generation you know so much has happened was there anything while creating bug snacks that the team you know saw over these last few years that really stuck with the team as something that players seemed to be drawn to or something that you felt like uh, in the creation of it was um going along maybe with trends or going against trends was there was there anything that you, you've seen in this generation that really stuck <laughs> out and really maybe influenced the design that you can talk about i understand if there's you know stuff that maybe we can't say until we see the full game. Um, I know definitely John's talked about how like kind of Horizon and Breath of the Wild coming out really uh, hit us a lot. Like, and that was mid development, but it's still kind of like, I don't know, showed us a lot of cool ideas. Yeah. That's John Murphy, uh, another one of our designers. Yeah. Those, those influenced, I think how the world functions to some degree and like obviously we can't uh as our team we can't recreate that level of like <laughs> fidelity or interaction but we've taken like small parts of it uh to kind of improve our own world that we're building yeah i, I would say in terms of design approach not necessarily um fidelity <laughs> <laughs> um also slime rancher yeah. was uh, oh. a game i kept an eye on to make sure that we weren't making it. <laughs> but, well, and and I think like Ooblets was something. Oh, that also Ooblets for sure. Left field um, that we were like, ooh, are, are we too close to this or not? And <laughs> just like, uh, yeah, the the length of the development had us constantly worrying of like, is there going to be something that comes out or is announced that is like exactly or like what we're doing or too close to bug snacks? Um, and so far, uh, I feel like maybe we're in the same like arena of like cute bright colorful games but nothing has been exactly bug snacks yet so i feel like we lucked out um to some degree uh but i mean it was also kind of like you're saying or we're asking is a con uh, like a conscious choice and like monitoring of the vibes of the game's zeitgeist of sure. course, yeah. Um, and certainly, at least from my side of things, I haven't seen anything that's quite looked like or uh, felt like what I think Bugsnacks could be uh, when we get to play it later <laughs> this year. Uh, and I'm I'm very excited to talk to you both more as we learn more and actually uh, get hands-on time and, of course, see the game uh, later this year since it's launching uh, in the holiday 2020 uh, as of right now. Mm -hmm. But Phil and Kevin, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, to keep talking about bug snacks, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty more to talk about in the future, but I will throw back to the rest of our episode, and people can get back to all the other PlayStation stuff that happened that week. Probably something I would hope. Uh, but thank yeah. you both so much for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thanks for having us again. And we're back. Thank you, Jonathan, as always, for your enlightening questions that definitely don't annoy the people you speak with. Uh, before we get sort of into the end of the show, I do want to wrap up just very quickly and mention uh, in a quick bit of real news crunch, uh, I do want to mention the free July PlayStation Plus games for this month. Uh, it's also the 10th anniversary of PlayStation Plus. I did not realize that until they mentioned 
that PlayStation Plus has been around for that long. Uh, I forget that it's been a part of our lives for so long. Uh, but in July, free games, they're including one free extra game. Uh, so it'll be Rise of the Tomb Raider, a fantastic Tomb Raider game. You should definitely check that out if you haven't. As well as NBA 2K20 and Erica, which is sort of a um, FMV uh, narrative game that you play with a companion app on your phone. Um, Please play Rise of the Tomb Raider. Even if you haven't played the like the 2016 reboot, the sequel is so much better. It's so good. Play it if you haven't. It's amazing. I agree with you on that. Yeah, R- Rise is definitely my favorite of that trilogy, hands down, uh, and definitely worth the time if you haven't played it, uh, especially as you wait for the crazy rush of fall games coming out later this year. Uh, I did also briefly want to mention they announced today as we're recording that Dreams is getting PSVR support on July 22nd. Uh, that's been a long time coming. They announced it during their Dreamscom 20 uh, event where they debuted a bunch of new games that are inside of Dreams that the Dreams community is making. Uh, if you didn't catch any of that stuff, I'd definitely go check out Media Molecule's uh, Twitter account to go see a bunch of really fun trailers for some cool uh, Dreams community games that have been made. And then also wanted to briefly mention, since I'm a big fan of the game, we'll definitely talk about it in the weeks to come, uh, Crash Bandicoot 4 got into a weird kerfuffle over the weekend where people thought it was going to have microtransactions in DLC. Uh, the devs since have said that the game will not have any microtransactions. Uh, this came about apparently because the uh, totally tubular cosmetic skins that are in the game uh, have to be redeemed separately. And even though they are free redemptions, that counts to the Microsoft Store, I think, as an in-app purchase. Uh, so that seems to be where that came from. Granted, Crash Team Racing eventually did get microtransactions where you could buy Wumpa coins for real-life money. Maybe that happens at some point here too, but it seems like uh, the focus on this download thing is not a gameplay-specific feature and was a a bit of confusion there. Uh, As we sort of wrap up into the end of the show, though, I did want to read, we've been getting a lot of emails that unfortunately have been going unanswered on the show because we have had so much Last of Us to discuss. Uh, To the Beyond email account, you can write in with beyond at IGN.com. Uh, with your thoughts and questions, and we'll read them on the show. The first one I did want to reference was one from Nate, who said, I always hear Jonathan joke about people sending in emails to a joke or something that sounds like he's goofing around. Out of curiosity, does anyone actually send in those emails? And could you read some? For example, in the last episode, Khalif made a reference to the movie Pootie Tang, and Jonathan said to write into the show with fans' favorite Pootie Tang movie references as a joke. No one wrote in, Nate. I'm sorry. I didn't get a single Pootie Tang reference in the Beyond <laughs> Inbox. And honestly, I'm very disappointed. Not that I would know if they were references because I never saw the movie, but uh, not a single headline Pootie Tang reference uh, came into the inbox. So That's a shame. Uh, That's yeah. a crying shame. And they should be the change that uh, he wants to see in the world. Exactly. Yeah, he had the opportunity. Send yeah. it in. Now's Maybe- the time. I mean, maybe th- that email did have a reference and I just didn't catch it. So I'll ask Brian when he's back on the show next week to yeah, tell you me. You have no that. authority here to, to vet these. Exactly. That actually, that's very true. Uh, one question I did want to bring up that I wanted all of us to talk about just as we've gotten more in uh, this week in the news has been rumors about the Xbox Series S or Lockhart, the cheaper version. Uh, Joshua wrote in, uh, no, actually it's Terrence's question. Sorry, I'm getting so many different questions in here. Uh, 
we got actually a few questions, including from Joshua, about uh, having all three main consoles uh, in this generation. With the launch of the new consoles and limited finances to spend, $500 plus on a hardware uh, choice is a lot. If you had asked me a month ago, I would have said, obviously, Xbox Series X, since it seems to be very gamer-focused with forward and backward compatibility, smart delivery, and Game Pass. Uh, but after Sony's first party game showcase, I'm much more enticed to buy a PS5 at launch simply because there's a growing list of exciting games. Uh, do you think Xbox's focus on play anywhere on anything might hurt their sales at launch? And on the other side, do you think PlayStation's lack of the forward compatibility options and the generations of backward compatibility that Microsoft has will hurt current and future third party launches on PS4? Um, so I, I basically want to bring this up to say, do you think we're, we're seeing really different approaches, I think, to how Microsoft and Sony are trying to get people to buy into next gen and microsoft really has this focus of however you buy in buy into our our you know ecosystem whereas playstation is like we're starting a new generation jump into the new gen if you want ps5 games how do you all feel those different approaches now that we've gotten a bit more of them uh gotten a better sense of them are playing out does microsoft's uh case entice you how do you feel they're both playing steve i'll throw it to you first uh, I think it's basically two sort of different approaches uh, with just how um, both have been marketing um, each. And I think Microsoft is is kind of, uh, in a way, they're trying to be uh, a bit more forward in they want to be able to try to gain some ground that they that they had lost uh, in this current generation. And I, I think by, I think actually they're kind of making some really uh, good decisions and something that, as you said, is, or as, as the Terrence or Josh said, that, they are forward thinking in the, in that regard uh, and for the gamers. So I, I, I'm kind of hit, hit or miss. And I think obviously there's with the pandemic, everything kind of changed and who knows what kind of marketing we would have, we would have had by now of both Xbox and uh, PlayStation. But um, I'm, I'm curious as to see kind of how sort of PlayStation sort of uh, takes each of those uh, features that uh, Microsoft has push, been pushing and ta- like and kind of respond to that because we haven't really seen that a little bit well other than just the the big uh, PlayStation event they just had announcing the PS5. Um, so it, I think the the thing that they sort of uh, kind of took into consideration um, was announcing that second, um, hopefully cheaper uh, console with it being the all digital edition, um, which is something that that uh i'm interested in mainly because of course i can't i five six hundred dollars is a lot to spend on a console at the end of the year especially buying two at the same time um especially in canada when it's like the the, where i live like the price is just a lot big a lot more than the states but um i i I personally am am seeing this also from an accessibility side as well microsoft has been really pushing a lot for accessibility and i think actually this kind of ties in even to sort of the overall marketing of it is that microsoft was very uh, forward-facing with accessibility with the adaptive controller um everybody plays we all win phil spencer has has mentioned many times of how important accessibility is within the studios they even have an internal accessibility guidelines that is public that you can be able to see and look at but it's uh, mandated uh, within each of the first party studios uh and so no i have more confidence in xbox in their accessibility side where we haven't really seen a lot of it from Sony side um, other than last of us. And, and I hope that that continues further and be able to show Sony. It's like, Hey, this is just as, as important. Um, and obviously we don't know what's been happening behind the scenes. So I'm just more interested in, okay. Like I want to, I want all the cards on the table. I want to see what each is going to have and what each is going to kind of counter with uh, in the features. And, and I, that's when I kind of will make that sort of final 
purchasing decision, which is what I think a lot of uh, people uh, are probably going to wait as well. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm back and forth with it. I mean, I'm at some point I'm going to buy both. I love both. I want to play both, but it's, it's just determining on what will be my day one purchase is yeah. kind of where I'm trying to decide. Yeah, and we're uh, it's a very interesting position to be so close to these console launches uh, and yet still so far out from knowing the full scope of what we're going to be getting and what we're buying into. Uh, of course, that's something we'll be tracking in the weeks and months to come on the show. Uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time for this week. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people uh, find you when they're not just rewatching and watching this episode of Beyond or listening to it over and over again? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Steve Saylor um, or on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash snowball. Yes, I did get that URL. I signed Very nice. Um, and you can also find a lot of my accessibility uh, work over at caniplaythat.com. Uh, I'm the media editor there and uh, we have a ton of stuff planned for uh, up and coming. So stay tuned to that. Awesome. Uh, and Janet, where can people find that uh, wonderful, fantastic conversation about The Last of Us Part 2? Oh, yeah. Out? It's on uh, YouTube.com backslash GameOnesis. That's Game O-N-Y-S-U-S. It's also my handle across literally all social media platforms. And Lucy, we can just find you here, right? Yeah, I'm just hanging around. This is where I live. <laughs> I like, turn the camera off and I just sit here until the next episode. That seems just, about I, right. Do you just power down? Like, yeah. <laughs> well i like that you say we that's don't you know either. everyone is that we're technically all in lucy's house right now it's just like, you know <laughs> it's, corners, it's really like. weird <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially for sf apartments but uh anyway you can right. find lucy on uh twitter at lucy o'brien and myself at jm dornbush uh thank you all for joining me for this episode and thank you to red our producer as well I hope we didn't spoil anything for you uh, this go around. Anyway, thank you to everyone who has watched or listened to this episode uh, or to the show in general. We really appreciate it. We hope you're safe. We hope you're well. And as always, beyond. 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 Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.